So we just sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And uh, we sang that song last week, and we sang it the week before, and we will sing it again next week, and we will sing it again the week after that, probably. So how many times is that, kids? Maybe you can think about how many times is that. You got five? Five times, probably, we're going to sing this song. And the reason we're going to sing this song this, this Christmas season is because it is the title of my sermon series this Christmas season, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's uh, just our longing. What I'm trying to do is put us back into first century Israel, where there, there was a, a longing and a desire for Emmanuel to come. Um, but, but also, this expresses the, the Christmas spirit, uh, spirit so well. So it's not just that my, that's my sermon title, but it also expresses just what Christmas is about. Because before the coming of Jesus, right, the Jews were longing for this Messiah to come. And to the extent that we can place ourselves in the first century with the Jews, under persecution, under bondage, just longing for Messiah to come, we, we can understand what the Advent season is more greatly, more, more clearly. In fact, that's what Advent means. It just means, means coming and in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Now, it's interesting, if we sang that hymn, you can see it was a minor key. And, and just everything, I mean, every, every single stanza there just basically said, things are bad, and we need you to come, Emmanuel, to make it right again. Like just over and over, every single stanza, it just, just says that way. And the, the, the title is a prayer. It's a prayer, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And every lyric of the hymn, every stanza of the hymn, just follows up on that longing. Taking the terminology from the Old Testament and the New Testament, describing what God has promised to do, longing for the day where we would realize that existentially. Now, this hymn is one of the oldest Christian hymns, Christmas hymns that we sing. It actually dates back to about 800 A.D. Not in the form we have it today, but the seed of an idea uh, behind the hymn, uh, this man, John Mason Neal, um, knew 20 languages I read about this man. Very brilliant, and he was uh, combing through a, a Latin Catholic hymnal. In fact, even if you open up in your, your hymnal, you can do that to hymn number 245 that, that we were looking at. If you look down at the bottom, it says, text a Latin hymn, Salteriolum Cantonium Catholicarum. I butchered that for sure. You know that. My Latin's not so good. In fact, I know very little Latin. Um, but that was this, this Latin Catholic hymn book that he had found that he starts translating. And some of the seeds of these lyrics, he, he began, he saw them so rich, and he translated them even into English. In fact, it's interesting. He, he did the same thing on Good Christian Men Rejoice. If you want to keep your finger, 273. We just sang that one. And I, I just looked down and I noticed that it was the same, same sort of thing. If you look down there, uh, down the bottom it says text. It's a Latin choral, carol in the 14th century translated by John M. Neal. Just the, the, same, the same guy in which he, he translated this. He found these words to be so rich. The idea that the seed of them, that we want just Emmanuel to come and just pulling all the imagery there. Originally, the lyrics began with this, draw nigh, draw nigh, Emmanuel. 
And later, of course, it was changed to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And every stanza of the hymn, if you look here on, on 245, you can just look at it there. It just begins the same way. O Come, O Come, O Come, O Come. That is the longing of Christmas time. Is it the Messiah would come? In fact, that's why the hymn has been referred to as the great O's. O come. O come. These, these great O's in this stanza. The great longings of the heart that God would come and right all the wrongs. Just consider the, the, the prayers that this says. First stanza there. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel. Israel is in captivity and we're, we're, we're captive under the Romans. And please just come, O God, and ransom us. Second stanza, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. It's just the idea there is that our, our spirits aren't cheered at this moment. That's why it's in the minor key. And it goes on, disperse the gloomy clouds of night. And death's dark shadows put to flight. Like, put away the bad and the gloom. The day spring, come. The third stanza. O come thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and, and nigh. Just everything. Like, just set it in place. Because this world is not in place. This world is shambles. And we need you, O Emmanuel, to come and set it straight. O come desire of nations bind all peoples in one heart and mind. And there would be just a unity that would come when Christ comes finally. And these are only four stanzas from the hymn. Most hymnals have five stanzas. Um, there, there were more. Here's some more. O come thou rod of Jesse free thine own from Satan's tyranny. The same idea, right? We're under Satan's tyranny and we're longing for the rod of Jesse. From Isaiah 11. Right? To, to come and to, to just redeem us and, and to get us out from Satan's tyranny. How about another one? Oh, come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. The key of David from Revelation chapter 1. And, and there's just speaking about just, just let us come all and experience, right? Open heaven that we might have it in full abundance. But the next one, oh, come thou branch of Jesse's stem. Unto your own and rescue them, right? Jesse's rod, Jesse's stem, similar thing. There's just so many different ways that you can translate the Latin into English in a way that, that brings out the fullness of that. But the idea is that we're, 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 we're prison. We need rescued. And so may Jesse's stem come and rescue them. And another one, oh, come thou bright and morning star and bring us comfort from a star because we need comfort. So from afar, come and comfort us. And, and there are more stanzas as well. We won't go over them. I don't have them on my slides here, but you can find some more. But these words really do a good job of presenting the hope and expectation the Jews had during the days of Jesus. But, 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 but these, this hope and this desire and this expectation wasn't merely present during the days of Jesus. It was also really throughout the history of, of Israel. Um, in fact, if the words of this hymn are so rich, one person called this hymn, he called it this, a condensed study of the Bible's view of the Messiah, who he was, what he represented, and why he had come to earth. The song's lyrics reveal the unfolding story of the Messiah. And that's really what I'm aiming at in this series, is for us to look at the unfolding story 
of the Messiah, particularly see it throughout the Old Testament, to, to help you in any way I can to create and stir within yourself a longing for the Messiah, to, to join with this constant cry of the Jews down through the centuries. Now, our approach to this topic has not been to look at single isolated verses in the Old Testament, but rather look at the, the broad scope of just the Old Testament and what it teaches in the broad scope, because it's all, it's all aiming towards this longing for the Messiah to come. And what the great movements of Scripture draw us to see how, how Israel constantly longed for this Messiah. Last week, if you remember, we looked at the Pentateuch. We looked at the first five books of the book of, of Moses, right? All written by him. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we began with the fall and the curse of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we get this promise that um, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a promise made to the serpent in the guise of a curse. It was a promise of defeat for the serpent, but it was a, it was a promise of victory for the seed of the woman. It was a defeat on the one hand and victory on the other. This is the first time the Gospels were claimed in all the Bible. As I said last week, it's such a good quote, I want you to remember it, that all the rest after this, Genesis 3.15, is commentary. Because it all speaks about how it is that this, that this, uh, the battle's gonna take place between man and Satan and how eventually a, a man is gonna arise and crush the head of the serpent who can, serpent who can only heal, damage his heel. Well, last week then, beginning of this promise, we began working our way through the book of Genesis and saw how needed this was. The world was so wicked, God was ready to destroy it, but he couldn't because he promised to fulfill Genesis 3.15 and so he Destroyed the world in the flood, saving only eight people, Noah, his wife, and three sons and their wives. And then we saw the, the promise coming through Abraham. I'm not going to read all that for you, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, but that is the call of Abraham. But the key there is that in you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So, so Messiah isn't just going to come from Eve. It's going to come now through Abraham and his family, through the Jews. The nation of Israel. And yet Messiah didn't come right away. Rather, the Lord first built the nation, the people of Israel. And from that mighty nation, God brought forth His Messiah. And as we continued on, right, we saw that He would look like the Redeemer that took them out of slavery from Egypt. We learned of that in Exodus. That, that this Moses, right? We need redemption. That's a little bit of what Messiah would do. We saw last week also that He would be the, the perfect law keeper. The one who would keep things perfectly that the law prophesied of him. We saw also that he would be the ultimate prophet. He would be like Moses in a way, but, but better than Moses. And this week, right, we're going to look at Joshua, Judges, and then the period of the kings. And each of those periods in Israel's history are going to teach us a little bit more about the character of the Messiah. Mostly by, by, by people coming and sort of redeeming and sort of helping and sort of saving, but yet in a greater way. God will do when he, when he comes. And again, I, I plan to approach this week much like I did last week by sharing with you some of the, the chapter summaries that I have. Last week, I, I told you about this book that I wrote, uh, My Bible Summaries, um, which is basically an introduction, about 10 page of an essay of some experience I've had with reading the Bible with uh, some of you. And then some charts here for you to fill in your own Bible summaries as a way to help master the Bible. This book is called Mastering the Bible One Chapter at a Time. 
Now, I showed you this last week and said, you know, some, the fonts are kind of bad, the, the spacing is sort of bad, there's, there's editing regarding the text. Well, I sent that, I edited it, and now I got another one back. This is my second draft from the printer, and there's just a little bit of changes, but I'll be able to make them tonight or tomorrow. I'll send it off to the printer. We're going to have a bunch of them, enough so that Christmas morning, if you come, church on Christmas morning, I have a gift for you. I will have... A book for you. Every family will get a book. But if you say, you know what, I really want to go at that this year, right? I want to be involved in some kind of accountability group to see that done. I'll give you whoever wants to do that will get a copy. So families can take two copies if if that's needed. Um, It's going to come off the printer this week and maybe about 10 days or so I'm going to get those, be able to hand those out to you. Um, But I'm going to use the same approach. I'm going to share some of my Bible summaries, which I have this booklet that I've I've done and put them together. I find this extremely helpful um, uh, a lot so that uh, even, Darren, when you were reading some of your stuff from Isaiah, I was like, oh, Isaiah, oh, let, let me see. Let me see what, what, what those were. And so I was looking at the chapters and, and sort of figuring out some of them. And you were talking about joy and you quoted Psalm, Isaiah 51. Here's my summary, Isaiah 51. The Lord comforts Zion, giving everlasting joy. So just kind of seeing that kind of a, a motif of the whole chapter. So we'll be, be looking at, at some of my summaries as you, we just work our way through Joshua, Judges, and um, through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, um, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. So my, my summary of Joshua begins like this. this. This is the very first thing that I have. God commissions Joshua, be strong and courageous, and Joshua commands the people. So here, I, I trust you remember what, what's happening at the time of Israel. Moses stepped off the scene. He's actually died up on Mount Nebo. He saw the promised land. He couldn't bring people into the promised land. Joshua has taken over leadership of the people of Israel. And the task of Joshua is lead the people into the promised land that God promised to Abraham. And the main message that God gave to Joshua is found in Joshua 1.9. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you will go. And that, like, that's a little bit like Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And here at the beginning of Joshua, we see a sort of similar pro- promise. Maybe not in the flesh like he came at Christmas time, but he would be with him in spirit and with power that God is with you. And that's what the people of Israel longed for. They longed that God would be with them. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time, that God is with us. Now in Christmas, of course, God is with us in flesh and blood, as he came as a baby. For Joshua, God being with us meant that his presence would be with Joshua. He would help him accomplish all that God would have him to do. And he would be this conquering hero. So Joshua would be. Is any wonder then that the Jews of the first century thought the Messiah would come as a conquering hero? Conquering Rome. Overturning them so that they might have a sovereign nation again. And he, there will be a day when Jesus does this. But it's not His first coming, it's at His second coming. But this is a longing that Israel had for their Messiah, a conquering hero. And this is indeed what we see God's presence meant for Joshua. So let's continue on with my summaries, alright? Joshua chapter 2. Can you, maybe if you can't read that, if you can't read that, if you complain to me later, I'm like, move up. So Steve, I couldn't even read those. Well, there, there's, there's like six chairs here, and there's lots of chairs here, and there, you wouldn't mind company, right, Yvonne, right? If you can't read it, like, eat, you're okay. Get up and walk to the front, totally fine, okay? Because there's lots of, lots of data in this. But don't tell me afterwards, it's too small. Chapter 2, Rahab hides to Israelite spies 
and ties a scarlet cord in her window. Now, I'd love to talk about that great story about uh, Rahab hiding these spies and, 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 and saying, we've heard about you, and, and we've heard about how the God is with you and how right, we're all fearful of you, so protect us. Uh, we, we don't have time. But we have chapter 3, Israel crosses the Jordan with the ark in the middle. Not sure if you remember that. They crossed the Jordan, put the ark right in the middle, and they, they passed by. And then they, chapter 4, they built 12 stone memorials. Joshua built it right in the middle where the ark was. And the people fil- uh, built these 12 stone memorials at Gilgal. And, and then we see chapter 5. The kings fear Israel. Then who was circumcised, they kept the Passover. The manna stopped. And then the captain of the Lord's host. So these are the things that happened in chapter 5. And in fact, if you want to take your Bibles and open up to Joshua chapter 5, this would be really good. You kind of you begin following along here. And I want to read this story in Joshua 5, 13 through 15, because we're going, to, we're going to read about this commander of the army of the Lord. When Joshua was by Jericho, chapter 5, verse 13, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I believe... With many other commentaries too. This is a sighting of Jesus, God in the flesh. This was Christmas, if you will, to Joshua. And I believe this because Joshua's response was worship. And uh, like, like angels do or other, they don't say, oh, don't, don't worship me, I'm just a man. No, this angel, this commander fully embraced the worship. And only the Lord does that. But second, because of the commander's command, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It takes us back to the burning bush of Exodus 3 when the Lord appeared to Moses in the land of Midian. Same sort of thing. He was there in the presence of the Lord, in presence of God Himself, to summon Him to lead the people of of Israel out from Egypt. And when the Lord appeared to him, He says, Do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet for the place you're standing is holy ground because I am here. And I think that's probably similar to what's taking place here. Is that the Lord was there. Jesus was there. The commander... And the army of the Lord told him to take the sandals off his feet. And Joshua did so. That's what we read there in, in verse 15. This is the character that, must, that uh, Joshua represents. He hints at. That Emmanuel, when Emmanuel comes, he's going to come as a commander of the Lord of hosts. He's going to come as a conqueror, just like Joshua was. The one who would lead Israel in victory over her enemies. It's just kind of a seat. Now you just kind of catch Joshua and Joshua came into land. That's what, that's what the Jews were longing for. This commander, this conqueror. And as Joshua unfolds, you see how important it is for God to be with His people. Here's, here's chapter 6. Joshua 6. Jericho destroyed. Rahab and her family is saved. It's a great story. I, again, I'd love to spend more time here. Um, but I can't. But Israel marched around the city. And when they marched around that city seven times... They, they, they shouted, they, they blew the trumpets, the priests did, the people shouted, and the, and the wall fell down flat. And the people of Israel routed the city, rescued Ahab, 
who did the spies, had hid the spies in chapter 2, right? You can see it. Rahab hides the two Israelite spies and then ties a, a scarlet cord out her windows. She's the one to be saved. So chapter 2 was the promise. Chapter 6 comes in, happens. But then things happen. Chapter 7, verse 1, you can read right there. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Here's my summary for chapter 7. I defeats Israel. Achan found out by Lot. Achan's family stoned and burned. And this is what happens when the Lord is not with you. When the Lord is angry. He lets you try to manage your own strength. And that's what they did, did with the case of I. When we can read through it here. But they tried to conquer with fewer numbers. They said, oh, we conquered Jericho. We can conquer this little city of I. And they were defeated. And uh, it was only after then repentance that takes place in, X, in uh, Joshua chapter 7 that we see Israel experienced the victory, which they experienced in chapter 8. Israel attacks Ai again, burns Ai by ambushing behind the city, and there's a stone altar on Mount Ebal. Now, that's the picture that Israel had of their Messiah. This conqueror that would come and destroy their enemies. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. We're, we're in exile. We need you, O oh God, to come and ransom us. Well, let's move on. Israel's history to the time of the Judges. Right? Here's my summary from, from Judges chapter 1. Judges is right after Joshua. This is the next period of history. After Joshua came in, conquered the land, did, a, did an okay job at, at conquering land. Many, many tribes got the land, but some didn't. But look, look at Judges chapter 1. So Judah and Simeon defeated the Canaanites. But the other tribes did not drive them out. So, in other words, right, as great as Joshua was, all didn't turn out so well. Two tribes were successful in conquering the Canaanites and, and claiming the land the Lord had promised to give them. Down in the south, Judah and, and Simeon, they did, they did perfectly well. But the other tribes did not do so well. And I think the message of this and Joshua is that Joshua was a great commander, a conquering, conquering one. But Israel needed a better commander than Joshua. And it's painfully clear. If you just look at Judges chapter 1, you can kind of scan down there with your eyes. And you can see like in verse 21, the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So, right, the Jebusites have lived with the people in Benjamin, Jerusalem, with live people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Benjamin didn't quite do a, a complete job. Or 27, the Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Or 29, Ephraim did not drive out the inhabitants. Or 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. They did not allow them to come down to the plain. Right? Dan came to take them and they were sent up into the, to the hills. They couldn't come down and take their land. The sad story, the failure on the part of Israel. Then in chapter 2, we really get the reason. Here's the first part of my summary. It says this, the angel of the Lord rebukes Israel. Let's just read the first four verses here of Judges 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into this land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no cov covenant with the inhabitants of a land. You shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? 
So now I say, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words all the, to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. In fact, that's why they called the name of the place Bochim, because Bochim just means weeping. It's a sad day for Israel. And there was reason for Israel to weep is because they'd been disobedient to the Lord and they'd failed to enter into the land completely. But God wasn't done with Israel. He had to be faithful to his Genesis 3.15 promise. He had a promise to bring the Messiah through Abraham and so he had to keep Israel alive and well and put them in the land that he promised to Abraham. Here's the rest of my summary from Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord rebukes Israel. Joshua dies. God provides judges. Israel continues to rebel. This is Judges. God provides judges, Israel continues to rebel. God provides judges, Israel continues to rebel. Help me now. God provides judges, Israel continues to rebel over and over and over again. And that's the book of Judges. It's a cycle. It goes from bad to worse, to extremely worse. The judges were a bit of reprieve, though, in the times of their distress. Let's look over in chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, and they were in terrible distress right there at the end of that verse. And then verse 16. It says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. These were these, these judges that came up and they saved them out of the, the ones who were plundering them. Right? Those who had come in and, and taken their possessions. Right? These judges would come in and drive them back out so they would be restored again. Verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. And now the key verse. All right, I put it on the screen even though you might see it. Judges 2, 18 and 19. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. This is the cycle of the judges. The the people of Israel were in distress, and so they cried to the Lord. What did they cry to the Lord? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Now, of course, they didn't sing that tune. They sang some other tune, but they cried to the Lord. And the Lord was moved to pity and raised up judge to deliver them. But then when the judge died, they were worse than before. So, so God provided a judge who delivered them, and then they got worse. Then they cried out. God provided a judge, delivered them, and they got worse. And just go down and down, like this downward, this downward spiral is what the book of Judges is about. Some awful things in the book of Judges. Now, when you're reading through the Bible this year, right, a light bulb went on for me. Kind of gave me some of the inspiration for even, even preaching this, this, this uh, Christmas series. Because when I was reading through Nehemiah, I was reading Nehemiah's prayer of repentance. Nehemiah is giving this account of Israel's history and how they often rebelled. Right? Our fathers rebelled here in the Exodus and in the wilderness and, and then Joshua. And then when they got to the time of the judges, he said that they had rebelled. He said this in Nehemiah 9 verse 27. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer... And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven according to your great mercy, and you gave them 
What would you expect? You gave them judges. But Nehemiah doesn't say that. He says, you gave them saviors who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. So when Nehemiah looks back and calls these judges by name, he interprets them as saviors. Because, indeed, that's in fact who they were. They were the people that God raised up to save Israel from their oppression. In fact, you can even see it right here. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies. I mean, that's who the judges were. They were saviors. I've often been confused by the word judges, like, like knowing that they weren't quite judges like we think of judges as um, those who sit in military tribunes with, with a courtroom and, uh, and decide some case. These judges, I've always thought, are, are those who like, went out and fought for Israel. So I've often thought these judges are more like military commanders or, or military guys. And, and indeed they were, but another name, I never really thought of this name before until reading through the Bible and coming to Nehemiah 9, saviors. These judges actually were saviors. In fact, there were 12 saviors in the book of Judges. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. And all of these saviors redeemed Israel and helped them a little bit. They would restore them, they'd protect them from the plunders, but then when the judge died, Israel was worse than before. And none of these twelve were quite the savior that Israel really needed. And I think the book of Judges screams for a better savior. We need the ultimate savior. This is the one we celebrate at Christmas time. Right, Jesus Christ the Lord. It's what all the Old Testament waiting for and anticipating. I think that when you take Judges as, as, as a big scope, you, you can see how God is hearing His people and providing someone for them, these saviors, but these saviors aren't enough. I mean, if anything, these saviors of the book of Judges were was temporary, but Jesus is eternal. He ever lives to make intercession for us. If anything, these saviors in the book of Judges right, save them from their oppressors, but Jesus, our Savior, saves us from our greatest oppressor, uh, oppressor which is sin. So church family, I encourage you to, to seek the true Savior. Seek the ultimate Savior. So, right, when these saviors died, Israel got worse. But when our Savior died, what happens? Right? He sanctified us. He cleansed us through the, the washing of the water. Right, with his blood, right? Washed it clear, clean. And so he didn't make us worse than before. He made us better than before. In fact, it's through the sacrifice of Christ alone that we're transformed, we're redeemed, we're conformed into the image of his son. So he did exactly what these judges never could do, never did. And so just trust this Savior. Trust this Savior. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. He's the ultimate Savior who's going to come. All right, well, let's move on to our, uh, our last wave here. We've seen the history of Joshua teach the Messiah would be a, a conqueror. Uh, we, we've seen the history of the judges foreshadow that the Messiah would be a, a savior. This is my outline, if, if you will. Avon always likes outlines, so here's your outline, Avon. It's coming late in the game, but here it is. Right? Joshua, conqueror, judges, a savior. And now we look at 1 Samuel, 1 2 Kings. It just prophesies of this, of this king. And again, we're going to see earthly kings who fail. Right? They're just, just not that we need, we need this better king. And again, in the spirit of surveying the entirety of the Old Testament, there, there's no way we're going to go through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, um, 500 years of history, more than 40 kings of Israel and Judah, 
Almost 10% of the entire Old Testament is just these four books. And then First and Second Chronicles, which parallel some of these books, would add another 10%. We're talking a lot of the Old Testament. It's impossible to cover everything in season. But it's my point in this Christmas season. We just need to understand a big, broad scope of a, of a shadow of what these things teach. And they teach us that we need a king. A better king than anyone on earth could have been. For Samuel begins where the book of Judges ends, with the, the final judge, Samuel. But like all, all the judges, Samuel wasn't enough for Israel. Here, here's, here's my summary from 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you, you, you pen over there if you want. You can turn over there if you want. would be, would be just fine. Um, 1 Samuel 8, Samuel's sons turned aside. Israel asked for a king. And Samuel warns them about kings. That's, that's what we see in, in chapter 8. Just look, look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They wanted to be just like the other nations. But God was their king. And God wasn't too happy with this, though he understood. He told Samuel in verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. God says, I was the king. They're they're looking for a king. They're they're right to look for a king, but they need to look to God for the king. And the rest of the story of Samuel and and even the kings is just the futility of of the kings. And and so here here are a few more summaries for you. I got that there. Uh, Chapter 9. While searching for Kish's donkeys, Saul meets Samuel. He's going to anoint him then as, as king. First uh, Samuel 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul who prophesies and is chosen by Lot to be king. So here, Saul is chosen to be king. Saul shows his military prowess in chapter 11. Saul leads in defeat of the Ammonites. And then I want to get down to Chapter 12, 1 Samuel 12, Israel affirms Samuel's integrity. Samuel warns Israel to obey the Lord during Saul's coronation. And what a strange event chapter 12 was during the coronation of Saul. Here was Saul becoming a king right in that very moment. And Samuel says, guys, this is a terrible idea. I mean, that's pretty similar to... um, to a pastor, right? We got this wedding between this man and this woman, and when it comes time for the, the pastor to address them, just says, Guys, this is a terrible idea. That's what's happening. That's how strange this was. And yet Samuel pledged because the whole nation wanted it. Everybody wanted it, and though Samuel didn't, he said, Far be it for me, for Samuel twelve twenty three, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. He said, I'll continue to pray for you. Even though this is bad, this is what you want. It's going to turn out to be bad. And surprise, surprise, it turned out to be a disaster. It turned out to be bad. Um, Saul was a bad king. Oh, he was tall, dark, and handsome. That's for sure. He was a military warrior. That's for sure. But it was a disaster. Just in, in chapter 13, even he played the part of a, of a priest. In chapter 15, he sinned by... By disobeying the Lord and not utterly destroying Amalek. In chapter 28, he sinned by summoning the medium at Endor. And over and over, he was unjustly pursuing David, who was innocent, just saying, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. 
just a ruthlessly bad man. And eventually he was killed. Eventually, David, a man after God's own heart, became king. And if you think there's any king who's going to be the greatest king, the best king, it's going to be the man after God's own heart. And David was a good king. And the best, most important chapter of, of David's reign comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you can turn over there. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of these verses in all the Bible that is a little bit like Genesis 3.15. And we got Genesis 12. And now we have 2 Samuel 7. Here's, here's my summary that, that I wrote, right? The, the Lord covenants with David and David responds in praise. And I don't have a lot of context there about what he covenants, but the idea is this, that David observed that God dwelt, that, that, that they were, were dwelling in a house of cedar, right? They built walls, you know, a little bit similar to our church building, right? Solid walls that are up, that steady feature. But they said, you know what? But God doesn't. God just has this tent, and this tent's in a permanent place, but it is a very temporary shelter. And he said, he's only got a tent. We should build a house for God. We have houses. Let's build a house for God. He went to Nathan, his, um, his prophet. Nathan said, good idea. Go ahead. And uh, then God visited Nathan in the night and said, um, why don't you tell David, you know what? I never asked you to build a house. A tent is fine for me. Um, you won't build this house for me. But your son after you, Solomon, will indeed build this house. But I have, I have something better for you. I'm going to build not a physical house for you. I'm going to build your spiritual house, your lineage forever. And we come to those crucial verses, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that is, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, and I trust you can see even there, like talking about the house. The house means just like the, the lineage. I'm going to build a kingdom for him. The throne of his kingdom is going to be forever. What a glorious promise. It's one of the greatest in all the Bible. I mean, this, this, this is right up to Genesis 12, like I said earlier, right? In you, Nate, <clears throat> Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to you this land. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here it is, right? That, that David, one of your line is going to be king forever. Forever. The people of Israel often asked of every king after David, well, is this the one? Is this the one that's going to reign forever? Is this the one that's going to reign forever? Is this the one that's going to reign forever? And they were always disappointed. Because none of them were the king they were looking for. Even David, the man after God's heart, was not the one they were looking for. Because soon after 2 Samuel 7 and 2 Samuel 11, he soon went Bathsheba. And after that, nothing good happens. Solomon is raised up. I think of anybody who could be the, the best king. It could be Solomon, the wisest, smartest, richest man on the earth. And yet, all you need to do is read Ecclesiastes and you see his story. That he had it all. And yet, in the end, saw it all as futile and empty as he pursued women, he pursued wealth, he pursued power. And then, as a result of, of Solomon, right, his son Rehoboam, in his pride and arrogance, split the kingdom. So all of a sudden, with, with Rehoboam, he, he went in the south, took two tribes in the south and reigned over them, and Jeroboam had ten tribes in the north. And you think about the number of kings. This, this, this king that would be promised, it wasn't Solomon, it, it wasn't Rehoboam, it wasn't Jeroboam, it wasn't any of the kings of Israel. 
Jeroboam, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Tibni, um, Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam, number two, Zechariah, Shalom, Menahem, Pekahiah, none of them, none of those kings were good. Or you think about the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, rather. They had some good kings in there. Rehoboam was, was bad. Abijah. Esau was a good king. Jehoshaphat was okay. Jehoram, Ahaziah. Athaliah was a queen. She was terrible. Joash was pretty good. Amaziah. Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king, but he still wasn't according to this prophecy here. Manasseh was like the worst of all kings for sure. Ammon was awful. Josiah was, was very good, but Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiachin were all terrible. Zedekiah was terrible as well. And the message you get here from all the kings, if I go from 2 Samuel into 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and you read the story about all those kings, I and mean, we're talking uh, 39 of them, plus these are 40, 41, 40, all these 40 plus kings, is that none of them are quite like this promise here of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I'll raise up offspring after you. Who will come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And who's that? Of course, that's Jesus. We're talking about him. The one that they were longing for. But, but the failure of all the kings up until the time of exile, when everything was destroyed, Jerusalem destroyed, Israel exiled, Judah exiled into Babylon, Israel destroyed, and like everything's gone. They're like, what happened to our kings? Where was our king? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Yes, we made a mistake with Saul, and we made a mistake with all the other kings, but will you establish your king on the throne? That's what they were longing for. And in comes Jesus. Do you remember when the Magi came, the wise men came from the east? Do you remember their question? He said, where is he who was born? King of the Jews. We've come to worship him. They understood that Jesus was coming as the new kingdom. Jesus, even when he preached, what was his message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus clearly understood that he was the king who was coming. And a king, when there is a king, you need to bow in complete submission to him. That's really the, the message that we have, is you need to bow totally unto that king. Well, Joshua wasn't quite the conqueror that we thought. Everyone thought we could be the, the, the judges. None of them were quite the savior. But David wasn't the, wasn't the best king either. But it was Jesus who has accomplished all these things. And, and you see that this is just the, I'm just catching the, the warp and woof of Scripture from a broadest, biggest perspective this Christmas season. Rather than looking at some single verses, which are good. This is what the broadest perspective looks. Next week, we're going to look at the prophets. We've seen the Pentateuch with Moses. We have seen this time the history of Israel and just prophesying king. And next week, we're going to look at the prophets and how they're anticipating a Messiah as well. They're all crying out as well. Oh, come, oh, come. Emmanuel. And that's my hope, that that is your prayer this Christmas season. You kind of capture uh, just the, the flavor of, of what it was like for Israel at the time when they needed a Savior. They needed the Messiah to come. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I would pray that we might embrace this moment as two weeks before Christmas, two weeks before the, the Messiah w- would be born. God, may we put ourselves in the situation of, of Israel. Uh, we've seen all these earthly rulers come and go, these great military heroes, and indeed they were, they were good, as good as human can be, and yet we need something better 
than the best human we can be. We need the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. And so, Lord, I pray this Christmas season we'd embrace that, see that, rejoice in that. And even just this week, just meditate upon the, the failings all across the Old Testament to be the, the conqueror and the Savior and the King we need. But ultimately, Jesus is that conquering Savior, King, in whom we can trust. May we place our trust completely upon Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.